Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you grateful that we can worship together in openness, that we can come to you with our full selves to hear your word. So Lord, as we hear your word, I pray that you would work in our minds and our hearts and bridge the gap between those things that we might more readily hear your word and not only hear it, but to receive it and allow it to change our lives. We're so grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus that allows us to come in openness today. It's your name we pray, amen. This last Thursday was Ascension Day, the day in our yearly calendar in which we celebrate the ascension of Jesus Christ 40 days after his resurrection. And today is the day that we all come to celebrate it together. Now, I'm just wondering, did anyone go to the store this morning to pick up some Ascension candy baskets for your kids? Did you put out a bouquet of Ascension flowers on the dining room table as you prepared your family's annual Ascension Day ham? Has anyone hidden Ascension eggs full of treats around your houses and backyards? I certainly didn't do any of these things. And frankly, if I wasn't preaching this morning, I might not have even remembered that it was time to celebrate the Ascension at all. It feels like Easter was just two weeks ago tops, not 40 days. And I must admit, most of the time, I don't really stop to think about how odd it is that we have holidays for the birth and resurrection of Jesus, but not the day that solidified the gospel as being true in the hearts and minds of his believers. Where are the Ascension Day carols playing on the radio? Before we talk more about the ascension of Jesus, I want to talk a bit about the Heidelberg Catechism, which is exciting. Now, I did not grow up learning the Heidelberg Catechism. I stumbled upon it much later. Some Reformed traditions are really steeped in it, teaching it to their children from a young age and devoting at least one church service per week to its teaching amongst the whole congregation. But for those like me who didn't grow up learning it, the Heidelberg Catechism was written in the 1600s for a people with their backs against the wall. Protestant and Catholic violence was at its peak, and there was very little comfort in the world. Infant mortality was high. Any sort of difference in belief was equal to the death penalty, and the people of Europe were more divided than ever. It was not an easy or especially kind time to be living in, which sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? So the Heidelberg Catechism was written in a spirit of unity, of peace, and of comfort. For those who aren't so sure what a catechism is, and I forgive you for that because it's a strange word, here's a definition. Catechism, a manual of religious instruction usually arranged in the form of questions and answers used to instruct the young, to win converts, and to testify to the faith. So that's why it's generally taught to children youth and young adults, because of its format, it's easy to teach the fundamentals of the faith in a very devotional and, and practical way. And that's what enhances and separates the Heidelberg Catechism from other catechisms of its time. It is devotional, warm, and comforting. Our own New City Catechism that I just read, that we teach the children here at First Pres, is based in part on the Heidelberg. Its tone and candor are just that inviting. Now, I know that you didn't come to church to hear a history lesson on the Reformation, but I promise I'm going somewhere. We're now some 400 years removed from the events that drove the Reformation. 
It happened, times changed, and we have cars now. Surely there's nothing especially helpful in something written for people who wore robes and stockings to work every day, right? I don't necessarily read the Magna Carta and get encouraged. And we tend to think these sorts of things about old stuff, religion included, while its content hasn't changed and never will, we can sometimes lose the oomph for the good old-fashioned good news. I fear that we might be verging on becoming over-familiar with the things that shape us most, the ascension of Jesus included. If you're curious, and even if you're not, here's what the Heidelberg Catechism has to say on the ascension of Jesus from Lord's Day 18. Question, what do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? Answer, that Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Question, how does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? Answer, first, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter-pledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Similarly, the New City Catechism that I just read says, of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? And the answer is, Christ physically ascended on our behalf, just as he came down to earth physically on our account, and he is now advocating for us in the presence of his Father, preparing a place for us, and also sends us his Spirit. It seems rather important, doesn't it? So why aren't we celebrating it more often? I get it. The birth of Jesus is iconic. The manger, the angels appearing to the shepherds, the wise men and their gifts, the fact that God chose to come to earth as a man, that is huge. In the same way, the death and resurrection of Jesus is burned into our minds. Without it, we don't have salvation. I'm not downplaying these moments in the least. They are the historical moments that have shaped our lives more than any other, truly. But what about the ascension? When's the last time you've heard it preached about outside of its annual celebration? We tend to stop with the empty tomb or just lump it in with the other aspects of the life of Jesus. In not so many words, we're sort of saying that the end of Jesus' earthly ministry isn't as exciting as those other parts. Without realizing it, we've misunderstood its place in the gospel story and in our lives. And believe it or not, the Heidelberg Catechism actually says more about the ascension than the resurrection, devoting four questions to the resurrection's one. And still, we aren't talking about it. In today's text, we find a similar misunderstanding from the disciples. For the last 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he had been teaching the disciples about himself. He was revealing to them how he was the fulfillment of all the scriptures, of every prophecy, law, and song. It was the greatest accelerated course in the history of the world. The disciples had to have been in awe of what they heard. They had spent three years with this man and had seen the incredible things that he could do, but now they were really seeing the ramifications of what his being the Son of God meant. They were getting the sort of teaching firsthand that we have been trying to replicate for over 2,000 years, the kind of teaching the Heidelberg Catechism is trying to accomplish, all in less time than a summer vacation. How sweet it must have been 
a golden time in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. I'm sure that it was clear that their time with Jesus was fleeting. After all, how long could something this good go on? Something had to be coming up, the next phase in what Jesus had planned. They were probably thinking that whatever Jesus had cooked up was going to be huge. I mean, he had been as dead as something could be, and yet here he was, living, teaching them, teaching them about how he was the fulfillment of all the prophecies made to Abraham, about how he would be a king even greater than David, and that the nation of Israel would be restored. For the disciples, Jewish people under Roman rule, there had to be some level of excitement that Jesus was about to do something massive, something kingly. So on that hillside in Bethany, the disciples started to get the sense that something was up. The next move in the plan was coming. I'm not sure what the tone of that day was like or what the disciples were feeling, but it had to be obvious that Jesus was doing something. After some waiting, one disciple finally had the courage to ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The air had to be thick with tension. This was as point blank as a question could be. All the hopes of any Jewish person of that day hung in that question. Are all of our political dreams about to happen? Is our birthright about to be restored? Are you going to overthrow the Romans? Are you going to make Israel great again? Are you the political force that we've longed for? After 40 days of explaining to them who he was, the disciples took him to say that he was a king. The son of God, yeah, but still a king, a political leader, another important guy and a long list of important guys. Their human reason fell short. They misunderstood. I find it funny here that Jesus doesn't totally answer the disciples' question. Echoing all the times that the disciples misunderstood him before, Jesus jukes their expectations. If he wanted to, Jesus could have answered, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do, and then set up a camp in, Israel, in Jerusalem. It wouldn't have taken too long to gather some sort of political backing and for armies to come together. He could have called down a battalion of angels and sacked the city. Within the day, Jesus could have been sitting on a throne, the Roman legions defeated, and the nation of Israel lifted up to a glory it had never known. That's what the disciples were hoping for, after all. A restoration of what had been lost. The once great kingdom restored. But Jesus goes in a totally different direction, as he often did, and gives a much different answer. One that is so much more than just an earthly political dream. He responds, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples' hopes for a here and now political leader were short-sighted and well, understandably human. It's totally within reason for them to have assumed that Jesus being the fulfillment of scripture would simply mean an earthly kingship. After all, what Jesus was promising had never been conceived of in the hearts of human people. What he promised and fulfilled was far more than the disciples could have imagined, for he promised them the Holy Spirit. He promised them that his kingship would be over the whole world. And he promised them that they would be partners in that work. He was exactly who he said that he was. They just didn't have the scope to understand what that was quite yet. 
The response of Jesus was monumental, historic, and is still being worked out in us today. But it doesn't end there. Immediately after giving the disciples this word, Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And this is no small thing. By his ascension, Jesus was given dominion over all things, confirming that he was the king with a capital K, not simply a king that the disciples had hoped for. Peter, an eyewitness to this ascension, writes in 1 Peter 3, 22, now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Likewise, because of his proximity to the Father, Jesus is interceding on his people's behalf for all time. We have a direct line to the Father because of the ascension. John, another eyewitness, writes in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Not only this, but Jesus empowers his people to engage with his mission, to spread his name over all the earth. Paul writes this about the Father, giving this dominion to Christ in Ephesians 1, to 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. When Jesus had ascended and was covered by the cloud, two angels appeared and gave the most helpful message of all. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus didn't just leave. He wasn't walking away. He was going so that he could accomplish so much more, and then he would return. His kingdom would spread throughout the whole world, physically and spiritually, and then he would come back. He wasn't finished with them or us yet. He won. He defeated death and sin in his resurrection, but now his ascension meant that he is the king and would not abandon his people. Full stop. Take it to the bank. I've never been so glad to hear that the disciples were wrong. We need not live in total hopeless fear of political differences, viruses, wildfires, racial tensions, hurricanes, cancer, apartheid, murder, and death. As Christians, we must be responsible and respectful of the nuance of the pain of these things to both believers and non-believers and ourselves. But we must also live in the freedom that Jesus Christ has dominion over all these things. We still struggle and weep and hurt. We must remember that Jesus is at God's right hand, advocating for us at this very moment. Like Hebrews 13, 14 to 16 says, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for, with such sacrifices God is pleased. This world doesn't have to be our home. It's hard, seemingly beyond what we can handle sometimes, but we have a reason to hope. People of God, this is what we celebrate today. The birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. I repeat again the Heidelberg Catechism. Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. With respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. We can say this with certainty and conviction because scripture tells us it is so. 
This is the same Jesus that bore the weight of our sin on the cross and is currently interceding on our behalf as we sit here this morning. The Holy Spirit that he sent is also with us, moving and working in our midst, even right now. What a sweet and beautiful and comforting thing that is. We are allowed to share in his mission of spreading the gospel. We know that he will come again to finally set all things right. His kingship ensures that when things don't make sense, when life is hard and confusing, he is in control. We don't have to know all the outcomes because we know the greatest outcome of all. He will come again. His ascension confirms these things. And finally, although we, like the disciples, may misunderstand and not give enough weight to the plans of Jesus, we have this assurance. Jesus is the king over all things. He has given us his spirit, and he will come again. We're reminded of these words from Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.